todo el mundo. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest today is rock and metal guitarist Mark Ferrari, who got his start in the band Keel and has been on bills with Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, and Pantera, to name just a few. He's also in a couple of my favorite rock and roll comedies, Wayne's World 1 and 2, and even made an appearance on Murder, She Wrote, but that's not all, folks. He's also a music producer, an entrepreneur, and an author. Plus, he contributed a cocktail recipe for my latest book, Rock Tales. So let's get him on to talk about all that and more. Hi, Mark. Uh, hi, Stacy. Uh, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me uh, on the podcast here and looking forward to uh, spending some time with you. And um, let's, let's delve into it, huh? <laughs> I spill all your secrets. Um, well, I want to start with Heal. Um, that's where you started as far as we know. So, um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in L.A. and I was always out on the Sunset Strip in the glam metal days when I was a, a youngster. And I remember when the Right to Rock came out and seeing Keel perform. Um, it seems like things came together really quickly for you guys. What was that like as a young musician? Yes, so I moved. I had moved to Los Angeles in early '84. Actually, January fourth of '84, so literally the first week of '84. And I had uh, moved out here to join three other guys from my uh, cover band back east. I had a cover band back east, and we all decided to move out to LA together and, you know, uh, become rock stars. As you do. Um, I moved out, they, they moved out like in November of 83, I moved out after the holidays. And by the time I got out here, these guys had run out of money and were missing their mommies and uh, ready to give up already. And, and uh, I wasn't going back. I wasn't going, I was in the Boston area, I wasn't going back there. And I decided to stick, you know, I stuck it out. And um, 
got introduced to Ron Keel uh, in March of 84 through our mutual friend, Mike Varney. Mike Varney, uh, the founder of Shrapnel Records and uh, one of the uh, seminal uh, heavy metal labels of the time. And Mike had released the, the Steeler album uh, in 83. And I happened to run into Mike at, at, a, at a store. Um, they say something good comes out of something bad, and that was the case with me. I was shopping for a, a leather jacket down on Melrose because somebody stole mine at the Rainbow. Oh. <laughs> and I happened to be shopping for a jacket. I turn around, and there's this guy who looks really familiar, and it's uh, it's Mike Varney. So um, I, I told him my story. I moved out here, and my friends had moved. Um so it's just kind of interesting how, how sometimes something good can come out of something bad. So yeah, I got introduced to Ron uh, in early, uh, mid-March of 84, and uh, Keel was off and running pretty quick. We did our first show at Perkins Palace in April of 84. Wow. <laughs> Not much time to rehearse, huh? No, and we, we, but we rehearsed every day. It was like musical boot camp, seven days a week. It was It was pretty intense. Um, and by June, we were up doing our first album for Mike Varney um, on the Shrapnel label. And then six weeks later, we had gotten our deal with Gold Mountain Records and started working with Gene Simmons on the Right to Rock album in August of 84. So, yeah, once I got into Keel, things uh, things happened extremely quickly. It's, you know. People, you hear the, the term overnight success. What you don't know is like all the, the work and blood, sweat, and tears and hours right. of rehearsing that go into um, into that prior to that. But in, yeah, he almost like a rocket ship, though. Once once that once that rocket was lit, it happened pretty fast. How was that? You know, as, I mean, were, did you feel like you were prepared, or what was that like? You were a fairly young fellow. Well, I, well, I was twenty two. I was prepared. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of that um, that saying about success is opportunity meets preparedness, you know. Exactly. Uh, so I, I think I was prepared, you know, I prepared musically anyways. But uh, that was an amazing time to be in Los Angeles. You were there. It was an amazing scene, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, on the weekends up there on the strip, it was pandemonium. It was, you know, <laughs> yeah. you couldn't even walk you know, without bumping into somebody from the, the whiskey up to the rainbow or whatever. And even, you know, down on Santa Monica Boulevard where where uh, um, the Troubadour was. was Right. Uh, and Gazzari's. Remember Gazzari's? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Of, of the course. godfather of rock and roll. Um, but I, I love that you guys are still going strong. I mean, I know you've kind of gone your separate ways and come back and forth. And um, Ron, I had Ron on the show recently, and he said um, that there's a new Keel song, Moving Target, and that you That's guys right. wrote that. What can you tell me about it? Well, Ron and I wrote that. You know, I'm I, I'm, I'm always uh, riffing around. You know, <laughs> so I recorded that song. Um, I didn't have a lyric for it. I just had the musical part of it. And, you know, Ron and I have been great collaborators, collaborators throughout the years. Uh, the right to rock being a prime example of the same kind of thing where th that was a, a, a riff that I had. We recorded it and then Ron went and put the lyrics to it, which is uh, exactly what happened here with Moving Target. Uh, I had the music. I passed it on to Ron. Um, it's kind of like songwriting sometimes is kind of like 
having a catch with someone. You throw the ball out, they throw the ball back, you throw it back to them, they throw it back. And um, that's sometimes how collaborations uh, work, uh, which was which is exactly how it ha happened with the song Moving Target. And I, I use the, the other example, The Right to Rock was recorded actually when we were doing our first album, Lay Down the Law, and we were all in the room together. And uh, Ron and the engineer asked us just to play something so we can get levels. You know, let's see what the level, let's see what the sounds are like. And I busted into that riff and the guys followed me and we we recorded it right there. Uh -huh. And then Ron took that back and looked to it. And then, you know, that was our that was our signature song. That's how it happened. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. A happy accident. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's still going strong to this day. Um, everyone knows that song. Well, and also the timing, the, the release, you know, that was around the time the PMRC was, uh, you know, raising his ugly head. And, <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah, Ron actually did, did a lot of interviews um, with both Gene Simmons and Dee Snyder, uh, you know, Gene and, and, and Ron and Dee and Frank Zappa. They were all very, um, you know, very vocal about the opposition to the PMRC and, you um, so that kind of was a rallying cry. The right to rock, you know, was uh, uh, certainly an anthem for uh, the rock youth of that generation. And uh, you know, if you if you read the lyrics, it, it's all about freedom and you know self expression, which is you know what this country was built on. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, now you had mentioned that um, Keel was produced by Gene Simmons, so. Um... Who were some of the other big music stars or celebrities that you met in Hollywood in that time? And do you have any stories well, yeah, funny. <laughs> that you can yeah. share? Well, uh, well I've, I've wound up meeting a lot of my idols, but um, during the recording of The Right to Rock, uh, we were we did some of it at uh, the record plant, which was famous for having a hot tub there. So I can't tell you everything that happened in that hot tub, but... Um, <laughs> Barbara Streisand was recording there and, you know, we'd see her in the hallway and stuff. And I remember uh, having my picture taken with Barbara Streisand and my parents were just like, oh my God, you've made it. You met Barbara Streisand. You know? <laughs> I have that picture somewhere. If I find it, I, I'll, I'll wing it to you. Oh man. Um, but that stands out because she wasn't really a rock celebrity, right? She wasn't a rock celebrity. He was yeah um, I mean a star is born I guess is as close to rock that she ever came yeah, to yeah but I mean she's she's known for you know her, her acting roles and everything else yeah. but uh that was very early on I you know it was before the you know Keel was quote unquote really famous and uh you know here I am meeting Barbara Streisand and uh you know at the rainbow where we used to hang out I remember actors used to come in there we used to hang out various actors. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, the rainbow. That was definitely yeah. a gathering place for the famous and the wannabe famous. Yeah, that 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 was our that was our uh, watering hole of choice. Because uh, back then, I used to live pretty close to the rainbow. I could walk to it, you know, or stumble to it, <laughs> right from it. You know, I remember meeting Larry Flint and uh, Athea. Is She died. But uh, I don't know how I wound up at the uh, Flint estate. It was just like being at the Rainbow one night and a bunch of people said, hey, come on, we're going to a party. Next thing you know, we're in you know, Beverly Hills at, at uh, Larry Flint's estate and there's armed guards all around. And, oh, wow. 
crazy, crazy party, you know, th those kind of things happened, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, those were the days. Um, yeah, I used to see Larry Flint myself when I was an entertainment journalist and did a lot of press junkets at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. And that was his place where he liked to go to lunch. And he'd be wheeled out in his completely gold-plated wheelchair, you know, and make an entrance into the uh, the Four Seasons. So, yeah, what a character. <laughs> um, well, I mentioned, too, that you have done some acting and um I've been watching that new series, Poker Face, which is kind of a throwback to shows like Columbo and Murder, She Wrote. And so I actually started watching those too. And then I saw that you were in an episode of Murder, She Wrote. So yeah. that acting thing come well, about? Well, the whole acting thing started with, well, actually predated Wayne's World. I, I, got, I got to back up a little bit here. Uh, when, uh, but please don't call me an actor. I am, I'm just, uh, you know, a rock guitar player, quote unquote, playing what I am. Um, but actually, Keel were extras in a Gene Simmons movie. When we were doing The Right to Rock with him, uh, he had committed to doing this movie called Never Too Young to Die. You should Google this one. Okay. He plays a hermaphrodite. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And uh, John Stamos was in the film and Vanity was in the film. I actually became friends with John Stamos throughout the years, but we were extras in, you know, one of the days that he had to work and, you know, I guess they needed some people in a scene. So he, 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 you know, he brought us along to work that day, you know, you know, instead of bring your kid to work, it's, you know, bring your rock band to work day. You know? <laughs> and so we were extras and, you know, we were just sitting around in an elevator or something like that. That was my first experience, you know, being on a set of a movie then the Wayne's World thing happened a little later, and it was due to my relationship with Penelope Spheris, who directed the Keel video for Rock and Roll Outlaws. That was 1987. We had a song on um, the soundtrack for the movie that she was uh, directing at the time. It was called Dudes. And Dudes is one of those uh, hard-to-find films that starred uh, John Cryer, who went on to big success you know, with uh, Two and a Half Men. Daniel Roebuck was in there. Flea was in there, I think. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, a few other uh, rock and roll characters. Um, but Keel, we were on MCA Records at the time, and that was the soundtrack was on that label. So we had the lead-off single from that album. Then we got to do a video with Penelope Spheris for the song called Rock and Roll Outlaw, which we didn't write that one. It was written by Rose Tattoo out of Australia. Uh, and I had stayed in touch with Penelope because she was she was a rock chick, you know. Oh, she yeah, was, she did uh, the decline of the Western. That's situation. right. Decline yeah. of Western. And she's actually managing a couple bands at the time. And I read oh. somewhere that she was going to direct Wayne's World. And originally, I just asked her if she needed any background music. You know, I was, I was already doing that. And uh, can I help you with uh, some, you know, you need some guitar noodling or something. And she said, no, I got that covered, but I do need uh, a guitar player for the film. Sure. I'm, I'm not doing anything this summer. <laughs> that's how that's how the Wayne's World thing came about, which is because uh, it's being Penelope. Yeah, people you know. and Yeah. And so, yeah, you asked about Murder, She Wrote. That came about through the Musicians Union. <laughs> you know, for a while there, I guess I was the guitar player guy to hire if you wanted a guitar player um, in, in your TV show. I actually did 
there was another uh, series called Step by Step that I was in. I forgot the episode uh, that was, uh, I was in that, but the Murder, She Wrote episode, for those of you who want to actually dig it up, was season 12, episode 13. It was called uh, Death Goes Double Platinum. So I think you can buy the DVD. I mean, somebody out there can probably find that episode. Oh, yeah. It's on Peacock, actually. It's streaming the whole series. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how that came about. And so for a while there, I was doing this, you know, they they call it uh, uh, background work or, you know, uh, session work, whatever. We just stand around all day, you know, for the most part, waiting for them to, to, you know, start the scene and, you know, just. Usually it was just playing to a pre-recorded track. Wow, simple, but, but, easy money, right? Yeah, easy money. <laughs> I uh, I am not an actor, although I do have uh, I, in my family. I have a very famous actor, Jennifer Connelly, is my first cousin. So, oh wow, really? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but uh, that talent did not come down to me. So. Oh well, uh, so you mostly just play a musician, playing yourself on camera, right? Yeah. Now, Ron, I think Ron's done some. I think Ron did a, a movie last year. I don't think it's come out yet, but uh, he, he played a, a villain of some sort. So uh, I don't know if he told you about that or not. No, but, uh, he didn't. That should be yeah. interesting. I forgot the name of it, but he did shoot it last year. And oh, I'll have to look that up. Well, at some point you did um, segue into providing original music for television shows um, with your own company, Master Source. So what spurred that idea? Well, I was always acutely aware of music publishing. You know, Keel had songs in films and uh, definitely saw the the benefit of that. You know, you, you make a little money, you get a little um, um, exposure out of it. And, you know, w- once my playing days kind of drew to a close, I started getting some of my demo recordings used in low budget TV, uh, you know, TV stuff, low budget films or TV shows. I had friends that were working in the industry and were tasked with finding music. You know, if we roll back the clock 30 years ago, they're really, you know, music supervision now, there's hundreds of music supervisors, but that whole field was really, really young back in the early 90s. And it was back in the early 90s, there really wasn't a music catalog that had um, songs. There have been music libraries, music catalogs before me, but none of them really had songs. Um, stuff that sounded generically similar to big artists. So if, you know, back in the early 90s, if you were a TV producer and you wanted to license an ACDC song, it was going to cost you a boatload of money if you yeah. could get it. It's going to take a long time to get it. And it was prohibitively expensive and prohibitively slow to do. So my idea was, you know what? Forget about the ACDC song. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get Van Halen, you know, you're not going to get Madonna. You're not going to get uh, Tupac. You're not going to get Garth Brooks, you know, but I can create something for you that is generically similar to it. It's not ripping them off. I'm not going to rip off their songs, but I can create something for you that's in the ballpark of those artists. And um, you can have it quickly and, you know, take a decimal point or two off the quote that you got from the, the labels and the publishers. That was my idea. And my idea took off like a rocket. I <laughs> so bet. Only guys in town that um, was doing this for the studios, you know. Um, and I happened to start this idea around the time that music became, pop music became more prevalent in TV shows. In the early 90s, you had the 
spelling shows like Cardia 5, Melrose Place, Beverly Hills 90210. Those are all pioneering shows that started to use music a lot more. Nowadays, there's you know music in just about every scripted television show. But back in the early 90s, that wasn't the case. It was just starting to happen. So I started at a really good time with a good idea, and it took off like a rocket, as I mentioned. And that's what I did for like 15 years. I didn't play live. I, I developed that business. Lucky that I found something that kept me in the music business, maybe not playing on stage or wearing spandex or whatever, but, you know, All right. but I was creating music. I was providing a service. I was keeping musician friends uh, working. Everybody won. Is there a talent for being able to sort of replicate generically other songs that seem similar oh, sure. or is it a learned thing that you have? No, to for sure. For sure. Now, um, very early on, I realized that my best value to building my business was not being in the studio all day cutting a rock song, but being on the phone and taking meetings with people. So very, very early on, I decided, you know what, I'm not going to record this stuff, but I will hire people that are the right tools for the job. I can write a good rock song. I cannot write a good rap song. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm the best tool for the job to write a country song, an R&B B song. It's just not, that's not those aren't uh, genres of music that I grew up with. Um, but a lot of the early stuff, in the library, the rock stuff was stuff that I wrote or co-wrote with friends. So these days, I'm actually still producing music for that library, even though I sold it to them, you know, 16 years ago. Oh, wow. Um, I still coordinate uh, titles for them. So I'm, I'm hired to be the project coordinator. They say, Universal say, okay, we want to do a country crossover title, and here's a budget to get it done. And that, that's my job is to coordinate that project, to hire the right guys, make sure they're Music is produced in accordance to their specifications and, you know, is not stepping on any toes. And I, you know, I got to issue all the contracts, do all the data, uh, update websites. It's, it's a fair amount of work. You know, that, that, that again, I realized very early on that my best value to building that business was not, you know, being in the studio, but, but doing the other stuff. Um, well, you've also produced music for other people and mm -hmm. bands, artists. I saw in your bio that you worked with Pantera before mm -hmm. they were well-known. Um, what was it that you saw in them that made you want oh. to be there for the beginning? You know, there's certain things in your life you remember where you were when certain things happened. And I remember the first time those guys came to, uh, they came out in 1985, Keel was going uh, through Texas on our first tour. And there's a knock on the, on the tour bus door and there's you know two scraggly kids there and we have a demo we'd like to play you you know and I you know I I, I was always you know kind of open to new things I remember them it was a cassette at the time it was even before CDs you know and I remember hearing that cassette for the first time and go oh my god these guys are amazing and they were first of all Daryl was still 18 years old when I met him he was just wow. turning 18 and he I think two years older and then they'd already recorded two albums. The album they played me was called Projects in the Jungle. And this was um, very early on in their career. This is before Phil joined the band. And they hadn't, you know, they hadn't segued into the Pantera that we know today. They were more commercial hard rock. It was kind of like Dawkins meets Motley Crue meets Little mm -hmm. Judas Priest. But it was great. <laughs> it was great playing. You know, Daryl, it did, you know. A deaf person could have heard how good he was, you know. 
And I started, you know, from that moment on, I started being one of their cheerleaders, you know, and uh, that actually got them, a lot of people don't know this, I actually got them a production deal on Gold Mountain Records, which was the label that, that we were on at the time. And back then, Gold Mountain uh, had distribution agreements with various labels. They had to get those labels to agree to distribute the album. So... Anyways, I, I, I did get them a, di uh, a deal through Gold Mountain. The Gold Mountain was unable to get them um, get them distribution at, at the higher label, so they let them go. And uh, But I did get them their first uh, press in uh, National Magazine, Metal Edge, featured them pretty early on. And then fast forward to 1988, it was, they recorded a song of mine uh, the first album they did with phil was called power metal they brought phil in and they liked the song that i had originally demoed for keel and, and keel actually demoed this song and it's on one of our albums called proud to be loud and they liked the song and so i flew down and produced the session you know, you know in truth uh vinnie and their dad uh really were the true producers but you know i I coached Phil on the melodies and, you know, I played rhythm guitar on that, on that track. And I played a solo on another track on that album called we'll meet again. And I've been told that I'm only one of two people that have ever guessed it on a Pantera record. So uh, that puts me in wow. company. Um, so anyways, proud to be proud to be loud is on um, their album, power metal. It's a hard album to find. Cause I think it's out of print. I don't think they're ever going to, re-release it let's see i think they did three or four out yeah they did four albums before they uh, released cowboys from hell really oh i didn't know that yeah so um i used to go down and hang out with those guys they were a fun bunch you know uh you always wondered if you were going to survive the weekend going down with those guys because they, they were partiers you know wow yeah never a dull moment but uh, yeah, you know, like I can't, I'm not taking any credit for their success. They would have happened with or without me, but I, you know, my own little way, maybe just help nudge it along a little bit, you know? Yeah. I mean, how fun to be there at that pivotal moment, right? Uh, absolutely. Well, you don't consider yourself an actor, but I know you are a writer and <laughs> you can take credit for that. I, uh, Your first book was, I don't know if it was your first book, but on how to navigate the music business, Rockstar 101. Yeah. Um, so things have changed a lot in the world since then. I believe that was the early 2000s. But um, what's one piece of advice from the book that you think still holds up? You know, one thing that everybody picks up on, uh, funny, silly thing that I put in there, don't ever eat anything with mayonnaise at the gig. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've had so many people tell me that that is the best piece of advice. That's hilarious. <laughs> you, go, you go to the venue and there's a potato salad or, you know, there's a deli plate out there with mayonnaise. Don't eat it. You don't know how long it's been out there, how many flies have been in it, whatever. The business stuff, you know, for, for you know, you're, you're correct uh, in pointing out that the book came out in 2002. So, certainly needs an update. It was written uh, for a lot of the digital stuff, uh, you know, came into play. But a lot of the the other underlying um, things that I that I that I mentioned about choosing a manager, choosing a business a manager, choosing an agent, you know, what to look for in a contract, you know, uh, having a um, interband agreement, that kind of thing. That's still good. That that stuff hasn't changed. But but the way certainly music 
is uh, has been is created now, distributed and consumed is is changed a lot. So yeah, do an update on the book. But that piece of advice about staying away from anything made out of mayonnaise at your gig, better take that one to heart. All right, even I can take. It could that. save you a case of hepatitis. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and you also had um, a children's book published recently, mm -hmm. and um, you gave me a recipe for rocktails. Yeah. So thank you very much for that. Now those well, are. I'd, I'd, I'd like to propose a swap. You know, yes. Maybe we could we can swap books here. Uh, <laughs> Sounds uh, good. Yeah. Uh, um, so the second book, which is uh, very, you know, has a cute title called "Don't Dilly Dally, Silly Sally." I'll tell you the story behind that. I have a daughter. She's now twenty. But at a very early age, it was apparent that uh, she was time challenged and she could not be on time for anything, no matter what we did, all the tricks, you know, except the clock ahead, five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, tell her we had to be out the door at 11 when it was really 1130 kind of thing. We were constantly running late for things. You know, sometimes we miss things. So one day I was, I don't know where this came from. I just blurted out. I said, don't dilly dally, silly Sally. It just kind of, kind of came out of me. I don't know where it came from. And I said, oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting title. I'm going to commit that to memory. So, you know, at the time I was still working full time for Universal. So I didn't really have the time to devote to writing another book. But uh, after I stepped down, I circled back to that. And I, I, I wrote, you know, I wrote a story really based upon my daughter about a girl who winds up missing something important to her because she was late. And then the advice given, it's just a gentle nudge to, you know, use your time a little more wisely, <laughs> you know? And so I submit, you know, it's kind of similar to uh, submitting uh, to a record, uh, a record company. You submit the manuscript to all these publishers. And, you know, in my case, I got a lot of no's, but I got a yes. That was the same thing that happened with the other book. You know, it was the right fit for this one publisher. And interestingly enough, my daughter has always been, she's always been uh, drawing things. And she actually drew the initial sketches or some of the initial sketches that are in the book that the illustrator wound up illustrating. So oh, nice. her DNA is not only in the storyline, but also in the artwork too. So oh, that's fantastic. My daughter's yeah, gotten a lot better. She, she still, uh, still runs late a little bit, but not, not as much. <laughs> So that's how that book came. That's how that book came about. And I can't tell you how many people uh, have reached out to me and, and told me it. that's my daughter or that's my granddaughter or that's my husband. You know, there's even, you know, adults that are time challenged. So sometimes these books get sold to adults for other adults. You know? Yeah, I was curious as to what the uh, ideal age target was for oh, you. I, I think, you know, probably you know, five to ten, five okay, to twelve yeah. kind of thing, you know. But yeah. again, we... You know, when I did these book signings at Barnes & Noble, I did a bunch of them. Um, some of the interviews I did on on the various uh, networks here. Um, but my daughter has gotten better time-wise, and it's it's been a great bonding thing for us, for sure. Yeah, well, on your website, people can see the interviews that you've done about the book, which is very interesting. And you have a lot on your website, actually. There's a wealth of information there. Um, what is the best place for listeners to find and follow you online. MarkFerrari.com. That'll get it done. M-A-R-C <laughs> Ferrari.com. And what is coming up next for you that we can look forward to? Well, you mentioned Keel. Um, you know, Keel plays once in a while. Matter of fact, we just played uh, last month in Nashville. It's our first gig in three years post-COVID. 
And so Keel gets to play once in a while. And my other band, Cold Sweat, which I was in after Keel, uh, plays once in a while too. We, uh, in 2020, we got together for the first time in 29 years. Wow. I hadn't even been in the same room with those guys in 29 years. And uh, we had one rehearsal and we got on the Monsters of Rock cruise and had two great shows. Uh, last year we did uh, we, we did um, the Monsters on the Mountain Festival, which is put on by the same people as the cruise. So both bands play sporadically, but I'm still involved with a lot of other stuff. I, I produce music for, for other music libraries, as I mentioned. I'm involved with putting publishing deals together. Uh, for some of the, the the bigger private equity companies out there, I'm supervising films. <laughs> you know, wow. I'm, yeah, I'm I supervise eight to ten films a year, so I am keeping busy. And I have a beautiful girlfriend. We we have a mutual. Yes, Tambi, the lovely Tambi, who took uh, the photo for the rock. Yeah, tales. Uh, she, yeah. She put the rock tails thing together for us. Yes, and, I love yeah. that. Yeah. Well, cheers. I have a full fulfilling life. Let's put it that way. <laughs> we do. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate you being here and giving us a glimpse into your past, present, and future. All right. Well, I'm um, I'm happy to do this, and uh, hopefully, we can. We, you know, maybe there's enough to talk about another one at some point. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> this concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. <laughs>